Well, I think we all understand why they don't want us worshiping. You know, it says in the Bible that God inhabits the praises of his people. So when you praise him, he inhabits that moment of praise in your life. And every moment you praise him, especially when you praise him in adversity, he inhabits that moment for you. When you stop praising him, chaos inhabits your moment. See, the opposite of God inhabiting your moment is chaos. Have you ever thought about that? When you don't praise him, then bad stuff gets in your business. But when you praise him, God gets in your business. Amen? Welcome to, I don't know how many days, another day of peaceful protest. Some of you noticed when you came in, there was a brother out there with a Palestinian sign saying, Free Palestine. I walked up to him and I said, you freed any Palestinians today? Not yet. I said, keep going. You realize that that's why we as a nation exist for peaceful protest. He's protesting an ideology against the nation of Israel and their sovereignty as a nation. But guess what? As an American, he has a right to do that. And as long as he's on the sidewalk and he's peaceful, I'm fine with it. When he's not, well, we'll release the police dogs. Today I want to talk to you about the judge. We see a lot today in our world where people are rioting, destroying property and life, and yet they're being charged with misdemeanors and released. It's not what the rule of law is all about. It's what, not what our nation was built upon. The rule of law is built upon the commandments of God. It's not hard to find the source of our belief system from the founding documents, not only of our national level, but also on a state and local level, affirming the, the power of God and the presence of God. And when we destroy the foundation of a nation or seek to, we find ourselves on shaky ground. Jesus warned not to build a house on sinking sand. And whether it's your individual house or whether it's a, a state or whether it's a nation or a world, when the sand, sand begins to move and the ground begins to shake, what will happen to the structure? It will sway and it will fall down. I want to quote to you from the second president of the United States, John Adams. It doesn't seem that he had a hard time understanding our origin and the power of the Bible and God in our life. He said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance frugality and industry, to justice, kindness, and charity toward his fellow man, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? It's a great statement, isn't it? It's one we don't hear a lot on CNN. 
And yet it doesn't change the fact that you cannot revise that which has been written. You can only hide it from those that you want to indoctrinate. I had not read the oath of allegiance to the United States when a person becomes a citizen up until this past week. Maybe you have not. I want to read a portion of it to you because it speaks well to what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States if you're coming from a foreign land and you want to have full citizenship. And here's the oath that you have to recite. I hereby declare on oath that I'm absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. I want you to think about that. It's saying that I will not bow down to another country or another leader. You may remember it was a few years ago when President Obama visited Saudi Arabia, and he bowed to the prince of Arabia, and it caused quite a storm. The reason is because we do not believe that we are subject to any other nation. The reason that we bow our knee only to God is because there is no sovereignty above the sovereignty of Almighty God. It goes on to say, of whom or which I have hereforto been subject or a citizen that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Domestic seems to be our big challenge today. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And then I fast forward to the end, and it says that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Pretty good statement, pretty good oath. The psalmist wrote these words in Psalm chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, but the Lord shall endure forever. You see, kings rise and kings fall. Movements come, movements go. Challenges, crisis, natural disasters, they come and they go, but God remains. When you anchor your hope on Almighty God, you do not have to fear when the winds of time and change come upon you. You do not have to run and be afraid of what's next or what does this all mean because you have, you've hung your, your whole life on the sovereignty and the power of Almighty God. And he says here that he shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. When we think about the throne of God, God enthroned in heaven, he says, heaven is my throne and Earth is my footstool. Now, if that metaphor doesn't speak to you, I don't know what does. It pretty well puts us in place. When you think you're overly significant, planet Earth, just remember you're my footstool. You see, God is sovereign, and he's prepared his throne for judgment. So the throne is not just where he, he begins to rule and reign. It's also the place of judgment. And we're going to see that in a few moments. It says, he shall judge the world, but notice, not as we judge the world. You and I judge each other sometimes unfairly or outside of righteousness, but it says he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, he will look with purity on every situation and every human being. It says the world and all its fullness. 
So there is no place where God's sovereignty and power and judgment will not go. And then he says, he reminds us, you have founded them. What? You have founded the earth and the heavens. So God is the creator God, and he is the sovereign Lord of the universe on the basis of who he is. He is not subject to anyone. Have you thought about the, just the knowledge and the power of God? That, have you ever thought of this, that God has never wondered about anything in his life? Because he knows all things as well as he knows anything else. He's never sought advice. He's never been dismayed by the problems of our earth. And that's why Jesus reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, why do you worry? Have you considered the lilies of the field? Have you considered the birds of the air? I take care of them. Why wouldn't I take care of you? Why wouldn't you let me be your God so that you don't have to worry and it's impossible for me to worry? Amen? Justice originates in heaven. Let's go stay in the book of Psalms, Psalm 89, verses 11 and 14. It says, the heavens are yours. So who owns the heavens? God owns the heavens. Oh, the Greeks thought they owned the heavens, and they came up with all kinds of gods and different uh, myths of how the world operates, and some of you might still try to believe that your life is built around some astrological sign. If you want to fall prey to fate, go ahead. But it's, it's the opposite of faith. My life is not determined by what sign I was born under. My life is determined by the blood of the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world to receive power and glory and honor. And the kings and the nations of the earth will bring their glory into his presence. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. God keeps reminding us, don't think this is yours. The world in all its fullness, and you founded it. You see, God reminds us of ownership. One of my favorite preachers from the South is a man named Lockridge, S.M. Lockridge. And he said he did not have to write his signature on the, song, on the, on the hills of a thousand meadows, for he owns it. And he did not have to put a patent on the songs of the birds sing, for he owns it. You see, his ownership is based on his lordship. If he is lord, then that settles everything, doesn't it? And then also we understand origin. There's a lot of debate that's gone on in, the, in science about the origin of the universe and where it came from. One thing we all can agree, it's here. Amen? It does exist. It's here. Now, I realize there are a few people on the fringe that don't believe that or they think we're still in the matrix. Old movie, grow up, move on. Others think the earth is flat. If you do, fine, I don't care. It still doesn't change anything. But what about the origin of the universe? You see, well, I think it came from a big bang and I think it's 50 million years old. Fine. What are you doing with what you have? You see, we spend our life arguing about things that don't matter in life, and we miss out on the things that do matter in life. Oxford, Cambridge scholar C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Fern Seeds and Elephants. It was not distributed here in, in the United States. It's a small publication. I happen to have a copy of it. 
But in it was a lectures that he did at Cambridge and, and at Oxford, and he said, basically, the scientists and the philosophers, they spend their life looking for fern seeds, and they miss the elephant in the room. See, the elephant in the room is, you will one day stand before Almighty God. What will you say? That's their elephant in the room. Oh, you can talk about how good or bad the Democratic Convention was or how good or bad the Republican Convention will be, but it's a fern seed. In the grand scheme of things, what really matters is you will stand before Almighty God and give an account for the things done. What will you say? The theme of the Bible is accountability. God is sovereign, God loves you, and you will be accountable to God. Psalm 89, verse 14 says, righteousness and justice. Those are two great words, aren't they? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. We talk about the foundation, and if it erodes, what do we do? And God says, let me tell you, my throne is resting on two things, righteousness and justice. The rightness of God and the justice of God. Mercy and truth go before your face. So God says, I am firmly rooted and founded on righteousness and justice, but guess what? When I speak, I speak what? Mercy and truth. Do you know that no one who knows God is saved by doing the Ten Commandments? By the time you understand what they say, you've already broken them. I have people a lot of times say, well, I keep the Ten Commandments. And I said, really? How interesting. You've never broken them. Nope. Amazing. The only human being on planet Earth, outside of Jesus Christ, who never broke the Ten Commandments, is you. And I'm here with you today. I feel so fortunate. I was talking to an atheist one day, and I, I, he told me he was an atheist. He was on the plane, and I said, that's amazing. He didn't know I was a preacher. It's always good not to reveal everything right up front. <laughs> Trust me, when you tell people you're a preacher, you get that look. You know, instantly the earbuds go in and they go to sleep. I atheist. And he said, yes. And I said, well, you must be an intelligent man. He said, well, I'm, I'm pretty smart. No, I mean, you must be really intelligent. Well, I, I don't know about that. I said, for you to know that there is no God, that probably makes you one of the most intelligent people in the universe. Really? Oh, absolutely. Because for you to be able to say there is no God, that means that you have studied every philosophy, every theology, you've traveled to every country in the world and into outer space, and you have been able to verify there is no God. Who could be smarter than you? And he said, well, maybe I'm not an atheist. Maybe I'm an agnostic. Agnostic says there might be a God, but I, I don't know if I can know him. And I said, you know what it, uh, in the Latin agnostic is? It, it's the word ignoramus. I said, I don't like that one either. <laughs> Righteousness is what? It's established by truth. What is truth? John 17, 17, Jesus said, thy word, O God, is truth. Jesus said that not even the smallest letter of the Greek or the Hebrew alphabet will go away until all is fulfilled in the law of God. That means that every word that God has spoken is true and pure and will be fulfilled. 
We quote sometimes a scripture, thy word will not return void. That means when the word of God goes forth, it will accomplish its purpose. You may not see it in your lifetime, you may not see it in your environment, in your circle of friends, but the word of God will go forth and it goes forth with power because it's living and active. And it literally is, it speaks of the very character and the nature of Almighty God. So when you read the word of God, you're not reading a piece of literature. I had a professor in, at Oxford, and he was a Greek professor. And, and somewhere in the middle of that semester, I just realized this guy was not a Christian. Now remember, he's teaching New Testament Greek at Oxford University, and he's not a Christian. And me being a little bit shy, I raised my hand, and I said, I don't think you're a Christian. He said, no, I'm not. I said, well, how can you teach New Testament Greek and not be a Christian? He said, I just approach it as an academic book. The Bible is far more than an academic book. Men have died, women have died to preserve the word of God and to bring it forth that we might enjoy it, we might read it, we might have a God encounter in the word of God. When you open that Bible, you're not just opening a book, you're opening a God encounter. The Spirit of God will take those words you read, and if you read them out loud, they're going to even amplify in power. Revelation says, in fact, that book has a promise. Blessed is those who read and those who hear the word of the revelation. It says you are blessed just for reading it. You're blessed just for hearing it. You didn't even say you have to understand it. You ever found yourself reading Revelation and go, I don't know what's going on here, but it doesn't look good. Right? Right? I had a friend, he came to Christ, he was a bottler at Budweiser and, and former Marine, and, and uh, he came to me and he said, look, I, I've been reading the book of Ezekiel. This is a crazy book. If you've ever read Ezekiel, there's some crazy stuff going on there. And I, I said, what do you think's going on there? He said, this guy had some bad mushrooms, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> you see, the Bible comes in layers, and those who are willing to dig deep will get deeper truths from it. Oh yeah, there's, there's, on the surface, anybody can pick up those nuggets of God in the word of God. But if you, if, you, if you seek him like you would silver or gold, you will find him. There is no limit to the depth of what God can reveal to those who are hungry after him. Don't, don't be a casual reader alone. Be a deep reader. Ask the spirit of God to enlighten you as you read the word of God so that you go deeper in it. You see, the Bible says in Proverbs, every word is pure. Tried in a furnace of fire seven times. Now listen carefully what it said, every word. It doesn't say the whole word. Of course the whole word is pure if, if every word is pure. God says, I don't use words indiscriminately. God is very precise. So when you read it, you're reading, you're encountering God himself. Righteousness is established by truth and justice established by mercy. God says, when, I wanna, when, when you look at my justice, know that there's always going to be mercy there. Let me ask you something. Would you rather have justice or mercy? Well, most of the time, I'd rather have mercy. If I'm speeding, which, you know, I've been known to do. Not nearly as fast as some of you drive, but... And uh, it's been a long time. I can't even remember the last time I got pulled over, but I got, but I got pulled over. You know how fast you're going? I do, officer. I know exactly how fast I was going, and I deserve a ticket. But I'd like to have mercy. 
So what do I want? I'd like to have mercy. Justice says what? You're gonna get a fine, you're gonna pay the fine, and you're gonna get some points on your license. You see, when you come to God, God says, do you want justice? Or do you want mercy? I want mercy. God says, but I have to enforce justice. And so here's what's going to be just. I'm gonna give my son to pay the price for your sin, so justice is served. And I'm gonna give you the gift of salvation so mercy is received. Think of that. Justice will always be done. Mercy will always be given. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, the great thing in the world is not so much where we stand as in what direction we are moving. We have a lot of people that stand up for rights and they have a position, a philosophy, an ideology. They have an opinion and they go like, I have a right to do it. You absolutely have a right, but I wanna know what direction are you going? Because if you're heading in the direction of God, you're, you're heading in the right direction. If you're heading away from God, then you're gonna split hell wide open. What direction are you headed? You see, hell has a sign over it, all are welcome. It's demonstrated by a broad road. Jesus said the broad road leads to destruction. And many there be that find it. But narrow is the road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. You see, if you've found that narrow path and you've found Christ, then you are a minority in the kingdom. But what a blessed thing it is to be upheld by God's right arm. Justice flows through righteousness. Amos chapter 5 and verse 24. Let justice, let justice run down like water. And this picture is in a, in a high mountain where there's a stream that begins to flow and, the, and the, the gravity begins to pull in the direction. And that stream builds up ste- uh, speed as it goes and the rocks are washed out of the way and they're re- made smooth because guess what? Justice is gonna run down like water. God says, just if you want justice, I'm gonna give you justice. But I want you to know there's coming right alongside of it a righteousness like a mighty stream. Like a mighty stream, there's righteousness. Do you know that apart from God, you have no righteousness? Have you ever heard people say, well, I'm a good person. I don't doubt it. I like good people. But are you a righteous person? Do you know that righteousness doesn't come because you always do everything right? Righteousness comes in relationship to Jesus Christ. And righteousness is given to you in relationship through Jesus Christ. You know why the Bible calls us saints? Now I realize some of you came out of a Catholic background and and there there are those saints and they have certain qualifiers that make them saints. But do you know that the Bible says all true believers are saints? Not because they're saintly. Don't get ahead of yourself. It's because our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. That's why Paul can write to a whole church at at Galatia or, or Ephesus, and he says, to the saints who are at Ephesus. You're saints. And in fact, in the Bible, there's only two things. There's saints and ain'ts. You either know him or you don't know him. And it's so easy to know him. So easy to know him. I remember going to church as a kid and I volunteered with my buddy Jim and we would put on a robe and we'd get a little candle and we'd go up and light the candles before the service started. 
And then we go down the basement and smoke cigarettes. I never was very good at the smoking cigarettes thing. Then when the organ started to play, we'd go back up, put the robe on, put the candles back out. And I remember all that time thinking they would talk about Jesus died for our sins, but I, somehow I never got the rest of the story. And I always wondered, why did he die for our sins? Have you ever had a, a prevailing question in your life like that and you were afraid to ask anybody the answer because you didn't want to seem stupid? I, hey, I went all the way through junior high and high school and into early college because I didn't ask the question. I didn't want to seem stupid. I thought everybody knew the answer but me. And if I ask that question, they're going to laugh at me. Well, everybody knows that. Ha, 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 ha. And then off they would go. And one day I, I encountered God. I, I read a book, and as I began to read this book about the return of Christ, I thought, if this is true, I'm in trouble. I was in college. Everything it said not to do, I'd already done two or three times. I followed the one commandment. Just one of them. Only got one of the ten, right? I, but, you know, I got that one. But then I began to read the Bible. And I picked up a Bible and I began to read it. I began to devour it. I didn't know any Christians. I didn't know anything. And I, as I began to read that book, and I, and I just I read it through the New Testament through four times the first month. I didn't know how to pray. The only prayer I could remember was the one that my parents taught me, and I thought it was a horrible prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. You know how that one ends. It ends bad. And I would get it mixed up with that one stick of needle in my eye. I, you, know, I, you know what I mean? I mean, we could scare, I mean, if you want to scare kids, give them that prayer. Give the Lord my soul to keep. If I don't wake up, you're toast. But I remember praying, and I, and I remember the moment when I said, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, now I understood it, for my sins. That he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day for my life, to give me eternal life. That was my transformation day. That was the day I was saved. That was the day that I got right with God. You know, the Bible says this in Revelation 22, verses one through three, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal. And we got that metaphor, remember the streams and the rivers, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. Now have you got a picture? Now you've got this picture, that mighty stream up on a high hill. Now you've got a throne, and on that, that throne is the foundation of which is righteousness and justice and mercy. And now all of a sudden, that throne is at the top of the stream, and there is the throne of God and the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world that he should receive power and glory and honor. And all of a sudden, it's all coming together. And then God says, in the middle, listen, it, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Do you remember the tree of life? It was back there in the book of Genesis and Adam and Eve chose the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They turned away from the tree of life. God said, I'm not done with the tree of life. I'm bringing it back. I'm going to bring it back, and you're going to partake of the tree of life. And in eternity and in this scene, in this scripture, you will not find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it has been judged and cast out. On that tree which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. How'd you like to have that fruit tree? 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Don't miss out what God is saying here. There will be some nations that will be healed in the millennium and in eternity, and there will be some nations that will disappear from eternity and the millennium. It's not just an individual healing, it's a national healing that will take place. That's why the, uh, the prophet Isaiah said there's coming a time when the lion and the lamb are gonna lie down together. There's coming a time when you're going to take your swords, you're gonna beat them into plowshares. There's coming a new day, and I want you to know that day will come, and nothing can stop what I'm getting ready to do. And there should be no more curse but the throne of God and the Lamb of God shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. A little earlier it said, we will not need the sun or the moon or the stars, for the glory of the Lord will be our light, and we shall reign as kings forever and ever. Isn't that good news? Justice will reign in eternity. Let's go to Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. But the Lord shall endure forever. Do you ever get the idea that God wants us to remember something? He's God, he's not going away. We had a cat like that one time. <laughs> Made the mistake of feeding the cat. Cat never went away. How many of you cat lovers? Let me just find out here, cat lovers. Hey, don't boo the cat lovers, come on. <laughs> Jesus is the Lion of the Lamb of Judah. How about dog lovers, any dog lovers here? All right, that's good, that's good. It's pretty well two, two, to, you know, two to one right here. <laughs> but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. There it is again. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Now, you know, for a lot of people, you, you kind of look at the Bible and go, how do I put all this together and how are the pieces? Well, let me show you a chart that we developed here and I'm gonna walk you through it so you kind of get a picture of it. Um, so what we believe here, and I'm going to start over here on my left, or your left actually, and uh, we're going to look at the, the church age. That's the age we're living in right now. So the age we're living in is characterized by the church. That began in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. He came to indwell and he formed this body called the church. And that was made up of all people. It didn't matter what your ethnic background was. It didn't matter what, what language you spoke. If you believed on Jesus Christ, you were part of the church. And there would be a local expression like this one. And there would be a universal expression that is all Christians anywhere in the world who believed on Jesus were part of the church. Okay? So that's what you have in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. In Revelation chapter four and five, you have a throne room scene there where you have the Lamb of God and you have worship going on and you have all these wonderful things happening. And then you, and John the apostle is writing the book of Revelation from heaven downward. So he's observing from heaven what's happening on earth. He is a picture of of the believer who is raptured, that means taken from earth to heaven before the tribulation period. So notice we have the rapture there. Tribulation begins chapter six. So when you hit chapter six through 18, you're going to see a lot of, uh, of, of different kind of metaphors and language that are, is going on there. It's called apocalyptic language. Cool word, right? Just means that it's hidden. There's, there's language like, what's going on here? I see this beast, I see all these heads, I see all this stuff going on. And the more you study it, the more it makes sense. 
Okay, so don't, if you, you just know that the Bible's pretty easy. It's broken down pretty easy. Six through 18, tribulation period. So where's the church? The church is in heaven waiting the return of Christ, the appearing, Revelation chapter 19. In chapter 19, it says Christ is going to return with him, the army of heaven, and it's gonna be at the end there. So if you're taking notes here, right at the end of the tribulation is something called the Battle of Armageddon the greatest battle that will ever be fought, all the nations of the earth will come up against the Lord and his anointed, and they will say, we're gonna put an end to God once and for all in our world. You see, the reason why there's so much effort to try to get rid of God or press God down is because that's the ultimate goal of the enemy, Satan, is to rid the world of God himself. We don't want him mentioned. We don't want him on our coins. We don't want him in Congress. We don't want him in Senate. We don't want him anywhere. Let's get rid of God. Because they think if they get rid of God, everything's gonna be good. Some of you tried to get rid of God in your life. You found out that was a mistake and you came back to God. Amen? Okay. So, so you've got the return of Christ. That's called the second coming, the appearing. Then you enter into a period called the millennium. Now what I wanna do is I wanna take you here in just a moment to the passage in, in Revelation and I'm gonna show you what it talks about, the judgment, because the subject today is the judge. God is the judge, okay? And then following the great white throne judgment, which I'll address in a minute, then we'll enter into new heavens and new earth. And so that's the big picture scheme of what's happening uh, in this age that we live in. So the first thing I wanna do is I wanna talk to you about the judgment seat of Christ. So now let's just keep that, that image up for one more minute. And so what's happening here during this period of time, Revelation 4 and 5, is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, what you need to know is only believers will be at the judgment seat of Christ. None, unbelievers will not be there. Now, the word judgment always sounds bad, right? But actually, this word, the judgment seat, is actually a Greek word. It means the bema seat, and it was actually a raised platform where you got rewards, so the judgment seat of Christ is God will evaluate each one of us individually on the basis of what we've done that was either good or bad. And the word bad here is not evil, it's the word worthless. You see, some things you've done in life are worthless for the kingdom of God. They weren't evil. It wasn't sin. You just wasted time. God says those are gonna go away. Anything you did without faith attached to it as a believer are worthless. Anything you did for the wrong motive, worthless. And then God will take, and anything that was good, meaning worthy, it stands the test, then those will be your rewards in eternity. That's how you'll be blessed for all eternity. So 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, let's look at what the scripture says. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. What if that was your aim every day? I just want to please God today. Today, I want to please God. God, what would it take to please you? What would it take to please you? For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, one day you're going to stand, and you're going to stand, and I'm going to stand, and I'm going to stand, and you're going to stand. We're all going to stand, and he's going to say, all right, it's judgment day. Let's take a look at your life. And some of you are going to go, you know, I don't think I had any rewards coming, and you're going to be surprised. You're going to have a lot of rewards. Some of you have been beating your chest your whole life saying all the rewards you're going to get, and you're going to have nothing. 
But you see, God rules with what? Justice and righteousness and mercy. Isn't that good? The second throne that we see is a great white throne. And this is only unbelievers. Remember in Philippians, it says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, at the judgment seat, we'll all bow our knee. At the great white throne judgment, all the unbelievers will bow their knee too. They're not bowing it in submission. They're bowing it because there's nothing else they can do in that moment. The Bible says here in Revelation chapter 20, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. In other words, any glory that you saw in heaven, any glory you saw on earth could not compete with the presence of God. From whose faith uh, earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. In other words, God, when God makes his presence known in that moment, it eclipses everything past, present, and future. Everything seen and unseen is eclipsed by God himself in that moment. And he said, and it was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small, and the great standing before God. Now remember, these are all unbelievers. These are everyone from Mussolini to Adolf Hitler to you name it. Just go down the list. To the person who just said, I don't want God in my life. Did you know that an unbeliever would not be happy in heaven? Because it's contrary to their nature any more than a Christian would be happy in hell. He said the books were opened. You know that God keeps books. He's got books of what you've been up to. He's been writing them down, so to speak, and remembering what you've been doing. And then he has another book, and he says, and the book was opened, which was the book of life. So first we have the book of your deeds, then we have this book of life. And if the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So God says, all right, justice and righteousness are going to be the, the basis upon which I'm going to judge. And I look here in your life, and I don't see any deeds worthy of entering into heaven. And then he looks at the other book, the book of life. I don't see your name written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, you have never been born again. And I'm sorry, but there is no place in my heaven for you. Sober words. Words we don't often hear today, even though they find themselves in the word of God. Our church, the church universal, has become in many, many circles a social gathering to make everybody feel good. I'd rather feel bad in time so I could feel good in eternity than vice versa. I'd rather know the truth than live under the illusion that I was understanding the truth. You see, what we find out is when pressure gets greater on the church, the true church rises up and gets stronger. The false church, it gets weaker and gets more out of sight. I don't know about you, but I wanna be the church triumphant. I wanna be the church militant. I wanna be the church glorious. Amen? So let me ask you this, whether you're watching online, you're outside, you're inside, wherever you might be, from the, the sound of this voice, do you know for certain that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Do you know for certain 
that if you stood before God today, he would welcome you into eternity. If not, if there's anything in you that says, I'm not sure or no, could I ask you today, would you like to give your life and your heart to Jesus Christ? Would you like to do that? Don't be like I was as a young man, afraid to ask the question, afraid to go public with the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? Not knowing any formula, any message, any prayer to pray that I could meet God. Don't be like that. Eternity is at stake. I'd ask you today, would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? I'm gonna ask you just to stand up with me right now and bow your heads. If you're watching at home, stand up where you are. If you're outside, stand up. Just stand up and bow your head and pray a prayer like this one with me. Dear Lord Jesus, just pray it out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins on the cross at Calvary. I believe you were buried and for three days your body stayed in a tomb. But at the end of that three days, according to Scripture, you rose from the dead and you brought life to everyone who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe, Lord Jesus. Save me right now, Lord Jesus. Come into my heart. Write my name in the Lamb's book of life. And I pray every day of my life that my life will be characterized by good deeds, by loving God, and preparing myself for eternity. If that was your prayer today, you prayed that prayer, I want you just to raise your hand up. Everybody's bowed, just raise your hand. God bless you, amen, amen. Anybody else, God bless you. Amen, if you're watching, you're watching at home, just raise your hand up. God sees your hand. There's nothing greater than to stand for Jesus, amen? Stand for Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Be counted worthy for eternity.